Azure Field is our office. I'm field agronomist Ashley Storby, and with me is my neighbor to the west, field agronomist Jay Zilski. Jay, how are you doing today? Ashley, I am doing fantastic. Here it is the first week of December, and you know we've got a blanket of snow outside, and we've got more on the way. And seeing as I was out Black Friday shopping and bought a brand new pair of snowshoes, I am looking forward to getting out and enjoying the great outdoors and uh, some of the local uh, nature parks here. So we've got one between Mankato and St. Peter that uh, provides some nice challenging conditions for snowshoeing. So I'm looking forward to getting out there. But you know, Ashley, so we're the 8th of December. So if I'm doing my math right, we got about three weeks left and you know, not much time for you and the boys on that outdoor challenge. So how are you coming along on that outdoor challenge? Oh, we are, we are nipping near 800 hours. Um, we're not going to make it, I don't think, because the days are short and we're awful cool. And my kids aren't quite as durable as, as older kids. So my oldest is only four and a half, but I am grateful for all of the the new innovative ways that we've learned to get ourselves outside, whether that's complying with a afternoon snack or um, a glass of hot cocoa and then just um, having it outside. And that's <laughs> little tricks like that have let us get outside. But I will tell you, Jay, now this is kind of a different topic, but in my area, there's been a lot of sickness, especially amongst the little guys, but you know, big guys included. And this is my shameless plug to um, throw open the windows for a half an hour a day or or something of that nature, shut off the furnace and and let you get some fresh air into the house. I, I really think that makes a difference. We started doing that the last couple of years and and I think it really helps. Well, that's good, Ashley. That's 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 a good suggestion. I'll have to convince my better half that uh, that you know what? I'm opening the windows and when it's a cold uh, winter day, just saying, you know, Ashley says this is going to improve our overall health, you know, and, uh, and, and both of us were probably raised uh, fearful of getting a, a bit of a draft on us and, and catching cold from that. So uh, us old folks are going to have to overcome that, that way of thinking from the past, Ashley. It, it might take some convincing, but you know, I was compelled to throw up the windows today because I happened to be in the office. I knew I was going to be in the office for a while and I really wanted that fresh air. So I threw up the windows and, you know, we've been in the office for a myriad of reasons lately. Um, and one of those reasons that we've been in the office was toiling on our agronomy summary book. And that is an annual publication. Jay, you, have you been doing, working on the agronomy summary book since you've been, I'm supposed not because it's only 10 years old, isn't it? That's exactly right. So not since the dawn of time. We used to, we, you know, way back when Ashley and, and a lot of the farmers that have been around for a while remember the on pins and needles. That's before we had yield monitors and way wagons were the only way to get harvest information, and they would be anticipating the arrival of the pioneer way wagon or yield book that would have all the plots and side by sides in the area, and. Uh, I, I hate to admit it and was rather embarrassed uh, last winter. No, I, I actually am actually proud of the fact that I have some of those books dating back to 1985. And so it's fun to reminisce at what some of those yields were back then. Um, but that's long before the days of our product knowledge plots. And I think that's how, you know, things change and evolve over time. And, and one thing is now with the product knowledge plots, um, this is more of a, what do you want to say? well-planned, well-laid-out strategy as far as planting plots and always including competitive products across the geography. And I think it gives us 
uh, as, as a pioneer brand, some really powerful information to share with our customers and uh, those that are on the outside looking in saying, maybe we should be trying Pioneer, that uh, we have those replicated locations always planted in the exact same order, always have uh, two uh, key competitive uh, testers in those plot locations. And, and so although yield monitors have come along, we still weigh all of those plots. And I think that's a huge thing um, just because there can certainly be some, some variation on how those monitors may read from one hybrid to the next. And so that's something I'm particularly proud of, Ashley, as I look at the book we have nowadays, how things have evolved over time and the information that's in, in that book. I I am proud of this book as well. You know, I came on to Pioneer in 2018 and this was one of the efforts that I was most impressed with as I as I came through my first harvest season with the company was the integrity of the data set that goes into these these summarized pieces. And there's a lot to learn for from that piece for us, for our customers, our sales reps. And, and we pull a lot of other neat data out of this publication as well. And I should note, this is a really um, intense collaborative effort across the, the employee team across Southeast Minnesota. So it's an all hands on deck publication that um, eventually makes its way out to the countryside. And there are printed copies now um, in the hands of our sales reps and customers. And, and our objective today is to share some highlights from within that publication, both agronomy pieces and product pieces, um, and we thought we would go in sequence of, of what the publication looks like. Um, so if you're listening, this would be kind of turning the page into page one, page two, um, and and then starting at the beginning. So Jay, where where should we start from a content perspective? Well, Ashley, you know, and I just want to point out as well, uh, Ashley made that comment. These books are, the grounding books are hot off the press. I think it was a week ago. So I think it was December 1st, I think that the, the finished versions were out there. So if you haven't received your copy yet, uh, by all means, reach out to your Pioneer sales rep. And so, yeah, what we want to do is, is maybe call out some some high points. And, and one of the things I always like to, to do when I visit with uh, farmers or if I have any meetings is, is look at a section there where we have the historical plot averages as, as we look at over the years. And, and the first year we rolled out, these product knowledge plots for soybeans, the average yield across all varieties that year was 58.4 bushels the acre, 2014. And, and, and that was, as I recall, 2014 was a particularly challenging year with uh, some wet and uh, wet conditions and some delayed planning. And, and you look at where we've progressed now to our average plot yield this year was 70.3 bushels per acre. And one of the things that I always share when we look at those trends is, okay, not not to look at those exact numbers is saying, okay, geez, look, I, I didn't get a 70 bushel average on on my farm. Uh, you know, that's several things to keep in mind. One, you know, these are choice locations typically where we plant these product knowledge plots. Number two, I, I always encourage folks to look at it is, you know, I look at it and say, okay, this year was our third highest yield over the last 10 years. Is that kind of what you've seen on your farm that, yeah, it's probably third place. And in a lot of cases for many people, a year ago, 2021 may have been one of the best years ever. Other interesting thing that uh, people notice on this graph as well is just that trend line over the years since that first year of the product knowledge plot for soybeans 
gaining about a bushel per acre in yield per year. And I think a lot of farmers over the years in agronomists as well say, what's with beans? Get with the program. We've seen such great improvements in corn yields. What about soybeans? And, you know, and I think I mentioned on an earlier podcast that, you know, years ago, if you hit 50 bushels, that was a pretty dang good yield and you were impressed by that. And in, um, you know, now, um, you know, uh, now uh, 60 is the new 50 where you feel pretty good. Um, but that great yields up around 70 bushels to the acre. So, you know, that's an interesting piece there. If we look over to uh, corn, uh, you know, we, we see a obviously a similar upward trend in yields dating back to 2012. This year, interestingly enough, we recorded in those product knowledge plots the uh, second highest average of the plots, and that was at 240 bushels to the acre. And that trend line improvement in corn yields over the years has been about three uh, bushels per acre per year as far as what the uh, what we're seeing as far as that improvement in corn yields. And so, you know, I think a lot of that as, as I look at, it, especially some of the last few years, is really the advent of chrome coming online and what it does to yields and consistency of performance in the field, Ashley. And so uh, I think that's interesting to to look at that as well. Oh, absolutely. And if you if you look at this summarized data, the other the other little piece of data that we had pulled, a, a big little piece of data, is how many individual yield checks we have over these last 10 years in Southeast Minnesota. 5,745 times that corn was dumped into a way wagon or a uh, a cart with a scale on it to record data to feed into this data set. So that's a lot of ways. Exactly. And I think especially in, and again, in that, in that um, concentrated of a geography, actually that many locations, you know, I, I always share with folks, I think it is probably the most comprehensive testing effort of anybody. I challenge anybody else in the industry to have that many replicated plots, same planning order, all the same entries in that kind of geography and it all being weighed. It really gives gives a person a lot of confidence to be able to make hybrid and, and soybean variety selections and positioning decisions off of the data set. So then as we work through the publication, we each year we provide a couple articles on agronomy topics that we deem to be of most importance coming off of the season that we're reporting data for, but also going into the next planting season, thinking ahead for us this year into 2023. Uh, so the first article that we included is an article on corn rootworm, acknowledging that corn rootworm is a pest that we cannot take our eye off of, um, that we have seen continued corn rootworm pressure, um, specifically in three plus year corn on corn environments. We also have to be watchful for the um, incidence of extended diapause in the northern corn rootworm population. And that is very much a, a local agronomic observation that that for you to to ground truth more um, for to ground truth more with a pioneer sales rep locally or reach out to your most local pioneer uh, employee would be really helpful to understand your local rootworm environment, especially as it applies to extended diapods. But use this article if you have the the um, publication available to review what is your western corn rootworm 
beetle in terms of how to identify that species and the differences between your western corn rootworm and northern corn rootworm because they do have separate implications depending on which rootworm species is predominant in your own respective cornfields with the western um, not surviving as well in our geography and tending to be overpopulated by the northern corn rootworm in a, a typical um, southeast Minnesota environment. But both of those very important to corn management in our area. And then there's some comments on corn rootworm life cycle that we're all well served to review. And then the next page has some really nice images of roots that have experienced feeding or scarring versus roots that have not. And then you can also see some roots that had experienced feeding, but then you also can observe some regeneration or new growth happening on that root system. And, and that's important to be able to recognize if you're going to do your own scouting um, and dig roots on your own farm to be able to understand what you're looking for when you're assessing corn rootworm damage. And we have some recommendations on scouting for corn rootworm larvae and also for adult rootworm beetles as well as some best management practices, including rotating to soybeans if possible um, when you are experiencing higher levels of corn rootworm beetle pressure, or if you are in a third to fourth year corn rotation or beyond, uh, we know it's advantageous to begin rotating into a non-host crop like soybeans, or potentially using a soil applied insecticide at planting, considering an insecticide application um, in season when you make a fungicide application, uh, VT and beyond, and utilizing a rootworm-traded product like Chrome. Um, so those are two call-outs there. And then we do have another agronomy article um, that is focused on fertility management. Absolutely, Ashley. And so our, our colleague, uh, Steve Ubley, our strategic account manager to the east that uh, actually Ashley uh, works with on a regular basis, uh, put together this piece on fertility management. And I think, you know, just kind of a, a quick overview. I mean, I think one of the things that I hear quite commonly as I've been riding combine with farmers probably over the last five, six years is that, you know, ask them, what are the things they're seeing that's really making a difference on their farm? And one of the things that consistently comes out is is the fact that when they went to grid sampling um, and in more intensively managing their fertility, how they felt that their yields improved. And I think one of the things that this particular uh, piece calls out, and it's something a lot of the, the farmers share with me, is one of the things we really discovered when we went to grid sampling is variability we have in terms of soil pH and the need for uh, lime application. So uh, this piece does a nice job kind of highlighting uh, the impact that soil pH has on efficiency and availability of, of nutrients. And so I think that's a good piece for, for people to keep in mind. In addition to that, I think as we start pushing these yield levels where we're at, it's important to, to understand and realize the impact that has as far as um, fertility levels on, on a farm as well. So the section there talking about crop removal rates. And then also, I think one of the things that, uh, gosh, we've really been uh, talking about uh, quite frequently over the last 10 years has just been the value and the importance of 
of sulfur. And so kind of uh, on this page, there's a section there as far as key considerations, as far as managing fertility and the importance of, of sulfur. A lot of times uh, we've heard Josh and, and uh, as Brian Buck is working in Southeast Minnesota as well, that kind of that, that six to one ratio of nitrogen to phosphorus or not phosphorus, sulfur to be in a good spot to be. So six or seven to one ratio of what your applied nitrogen is to your sulfur. And so, uh, Sulfur is a relatively uh, inexpensive input, always easy for me to spend everybody else's money, but also we tend to see just great returns on, particularly on our variable soils or where we have some low organic matter, Ashley. Oh, fantastic. So we do have one other agronomy piece later in the publication, but we next we include a an article that we refer to as our soybean product positioning for your fields. And if you are looking at your Pioneer Soybean order, or maybe you haven't completed your Pioneer Soybean order yet, um, a an article like this is is very helpful to help help you consider the needs of your own farm and then find the varieties that are appropriate for your particular needs, and to be able to do that very quickly and easily rather than paging through a lot of different information. And, and Jay is the creator of this document, and Jay does a wonderful job um, putting this together in a way that's very easy to use. So if you if you uh, have a concern about white mold in particular, you know you have a history of white mold on your farm, and you know when you're buying a soybean, you need to buy a soybean that is well-suited to be planted on a farm that has a history of white mold. Okay, so you will find the white mold column in this article, and then you will paint thumb down and look for which soybean variety has the designation as HS, highly suitable. That means that soybean variety is well-suited to be planted on a field with a history of white mold, and that's going to be correlated to the white mold score as well, um, knowing that for us, a score of a five is average and a Anything above that is above average. Um, so as I'm scrolling down, I'm looking at our soybean varieties listed from early to late maturity. Um, I come across several beans that are are highly suitable for planting in uh, farms with history of white mold. And one of them that jumps out to me right here is our 18A73. So I, I see those are designated highly suitable for white mold. They're also highly suitable for SCN prone environments due to their peaking source of cis resistance. And then I page over just a little bit to the right, and I see that they are listed as an S or suitable for SDS-prone environments. So they are, are very appropriate for all three of those problematic environments, white mold, uh, SCN-prone environments, or SDS-prone environments, but with their greatest strength coming in their white mold tolerance and um, ability to handle um, different races of soybean cyst nematode versus the PI-88 source of cyst resistance. Um, so that's one way to use this document. Now you might have other specific concerns on your farm. Maybe it's high pH. Uh, so we would look at our iron chlorosis rating for that particular uh, challenge on the farm. Um, or maybe you're in no-till, a no-till environment. And emergence is very important for you as well as um, early season vigor and disease tolerance. So you would look at that category as well. So really this is your one-stop shop for soybean positioning and, you know, don't let yourself do all the work. Your pioneer sales rep is very well equipped to help guide you through this decision, but this is a, another reference point available for you as a quick reference. Now, Jay, 
on here, this is this is your this is your publication on here. We have some varieties that in some particular scenarios, we designate them as poorly suited. Uh, so I'm going to pick on, uh, in particular, our 19A66Es. And I see those are poorly suited for white mold prone environments. So when I see a poorly suited, how do you how do you talk about poorly suited? Well, Ashley, when I talk about a product that's poorly suited, um, it probably pretty much means what the word says. Is ours, you know, <laughs> it, it, we have better options there. And you know, the way I, I look at it is, you know, I think those are most typically those are black and white i think the gray area comes where we have that ma or or manage appropriately and you know it, it's an excellent call out ashley because we look at uh, a variety like uh p21a53es and, and and they're listed as is is managed accordingly or appropriately and i think those are situations where you have your con the conversation with your pioneer sales rep tell me about tell me about this variety and in a lot of times I'm going to, you know, reply back to the, to the farmers. Okay. Tell me about the situation of the field that you're looking at because uh, 21A53s are excellent high yielding variety that we've seen provided. It is not a, you know, I'll quote Eric Schimmick, our guest uh, about a month or so ago, uh, provided it's not a white mold hellhole. Mm -hmm. um, we have seen 21A53s in fields where there is some white mold pressure. They may get some white mold, but they manage to power through it with some, some high yield potential. So anytime a person sees that MA designation on a variety that they're looking at or a field they're considering, you know, have that conversation with a sales rep. Let him give you some local guidance or let you share some more details about the field conditions you're looking at to decide, okay, you know what, we'll go ahead. I think this is going to be a decent fit for this situation because ultimately it's about getting the most bushels at the end on that entire piece of ground. Oh, that's perfect. I, I would encourage you if you are if you're interested in in having this one-stop shop for looking at your soybean purchase or your intended soybean purchase with your Pioneer soybeans, um, do seek out this article included in our agronomy summary book. Jay has a knack for creating material that's very sensible and easy to use. And this is one of those special pieces that really helps illuminate um, where you would look within our soybean portfolio. Um, and then we move into our, our soybean data. Yes. And this is, this is always the, really the, one of the favorite pages that a lot of people turn right to is to see, okay, what were the results that we saw this year? And we refer to these as our scatter graphs. So if a person looks at it, the these graphs, it's across all 43 locations that we had of the E3 enlist set this year. And so oh, this year we, we had, oh, we had eight varieties entered in that plot this year. And you know, I think one of the things that that I call out is is there really wasn't a huge spread. You know, if, if we look at the the lowest yielding variety was at what sixty eight point seven bushels to the acre, 
And the highest yielding variety would have been about 72.25, I think, as far as yield per acre. So, so it's a rather narrow range. And then we also sort things out as far as varieties that yielded above the plot average as far as the percentage of times. And so as you look at the soybean scatter graph, if you're high and to the right, that means that you were high, uh, high yielding and the highest percentage of times that those uh, that variety yielded above the the plot average. And I think the exciting thing to see there is just the progression we're seeing as far as yields with our A-series um, soybeans to see varieties like uh, 18A73Es to 21A53Es and the 19A66s all showing us some very strong performance. And, you know, uh, a year ago, some of those T-series varieties that are down and in, in lower into the left on, on a graph this year, those tended to be towards the upper end a year ago. So we keep on stair-stepping up the uh, yields with these A-series soybean varieties. And I think one of the things that plots don't show you is always is the agronomic stability that we're gaining with these A-series beans, seeing improvements in uh, white mold tolerance, improvements in sudden death syndrome, and, and so on. And so that is going to improve performance on your farm uh, because we know those are the kind of challenges that you have out, out in the field. And so um, I, I think that's that's an important uh, point to consider. And then as a person looks at this information, if you're curious about what's in your local neighborhood or closer to you, the plots are arranged, the plot results are arranged uh, by county in alphabetical order. So you can find those plots that are closest to, to your place. And then also uh, we have them shaded. So anytime there's a blue shading on a particular variety in a plot, that's telling a person that, that that variety yielded above the plot average at that location. And so um, it's, a, it's a great resource. You see the scatter graph, then all the data from all 43 of those locations. And Jay had the really good idea to break this data out by uh, county segments. So the overall average of the 43 soybean locations that we harvested across Southeast Minnesota was 70.3 bushels. But then Jay said, well, I would like to see that by, by geography within our Southeast Minnesota area. So I took um, counties representing the east and north part of our area. Um, so that includes Dakota, Fillmore, Goodhue, Houston, Olmsted, Wabasha, Washington, Winona, and Winnesheek, all of those counties. Now, that plot average for our soybean plots harvest in that area was 72.6 bushels. So 2.3 bushels greater than the entire plot average. So that area was bringing up our soybean yields. And, you know, we had a couple things going on in that area. In the far southeast, we experienced above average rainfall. And then when we get up into our Dakota County area, um, some of those, so Washington, some of those soybean plots are under pivots. And so they have just as good of a chance for a wonderful crop as did our Southeast Minnesota little corner there that it received above average rainfall. Um, so they had a little better chance there. Um, then when we go to the West, looking at Carver, Lesur, McLeod, Nicolette, Rice, Scott, Sibley, and Wasika, 
our average there was 68.9. So that was just a touch below. What does that end up being? Um, oh, like a three points at 3.7 bushels, actually. That's a pretty good. That's a, that's a pretty good, uh, oh, pretty, pretty good hit below, you know, and, and I think the interesting thing, Ashley, I think it's truly reflective of what we saw. Maybe not that exact number, but that relative comparison to, to, to say that, yeah, we were probably off about that much in yield because of the dry weather conditions and so um, I, I think that tends to make sense with what I saw in my geography, many farmers overall significant farm size. We're probably saying 61, 62 bushels was their on-farm average. Occasionally on some of those those really good fields, actually, they were probably right with that that average that we saw in our plots. So mm. I think it's very reflective of what, what folks saw as far as their better fields and then also the general trend we saw comparing yields uh, as we go as we go west compared to what was in southeast Minnesota. I think the surprising thing with all of the rain in southeast Minnesota is my recollection is visiting with with you and then Josh and, and Allie is just there wasn't as much white mold as a person would have expected considering that amount of rainfall. Yeah. You know, I, now that the dust has settled on harvest and we've had a lot more post-harvest conversations with individual operations, I am uncovering more comments on I on white mold in incidences where it was peppered throughout the field, but not in those big, really devastating pockets that it can be in, but in my areas on my eastern side that did pick up more moisture. Um, I have gotten lots of comments on on white mold. Now, why we just had it peppered throughout versus throughout a big devastating hole in a field. Um, you know, we can't be for certain. I'd like to credit to some of our, our variety tolerances, but that's a, that might be a bit of an overstep in the absence of further data. But I, I know our varieties are getting better and better in white mold tolerance. So it's, it's not out of the ballpark. Uh, we did then also extrapolate, well, and an extrapolation means you're going between two unknown data points. So we're not really extrapolating. We are just giving uh, soybean plot yield by planting date. Uh, so we take all of those soybean plots, all 43 locations, and then plug in the average yield in each respective location to see if there's trends between early planting and delayed planting from an average yield perspective. So this year, our first soybean plot went in the ground around the April 25th, 26th timeframe. Um, and then that planting window only gave us that plot. So we there was not a whole lot of planting activity, as you remember, throughout April, the end of April this year. Um, but then we really kicked off planting around that May 5th, 6th timeframe, and then continued to get soybean plots in the ground until we got to the end of May. Uh, so we had a nice stretch of planting dates with most of that planting occurring between that May 5th timeframe and that third week of May. When you look at the average yield from all of those locations, if we take the beginning to the end, um, our average yield loss per day of delayed planting was almost 0.2 bushels, is 0.19. Um, and that was a little bit less than the six-year average as we look across that data dating back to 2017. Our average yield loss per day of delayed planting is 0.23 bushels. Um, so certainly interesting to see it vary from year to year. I would suspect this year that part of that lower number, lower than average number is perhaps because we had so many plots going in in a concentrated 
time frame. Um, would you have any comment on that, Jay? What do you think about that? I think that makes I think that makes sense, Ashley. To to me, that would make a lot of sense that we see it being different because there isn't a there isn't a huge the majority of of plots got planted over, but almost exactly a two week time mm -hmm. frame their cell and i think it would make sense of that concentrated range what i think is interesting and i don't have an answer and i like to look at it on the corn one as well it's like okay at which dates did we have the biggest range in average yield in the plots and i think it's interesting to see that right around the 24th of may we had the lowest uh one of the lowest plot average there was at about 61 bushels to the acre and on that same planting window there as well you look at we had a high of about 87 so it was like about a what about a 26 bushel swing on that 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 on that particular planting date so what does that mean does it happen to do with planting conditions at at, at that time or uh, things that happen afterwards. I find that rather interesting. Uh, I don't know if I can read a whole lot into it, but it's always interesting to look at that. Oh, it is. It is. I really appreciate this data set <laughs> as we consider the value of of planting soybeans as as early as possible. And and looking over that, what is now five years of data, then across our five years of data, we are giving up 0.23 bushels per day of delayed planting for soybeans. So, and then on after that, we look at our, our plenish soybeans. Yes, Ashley. And so, yeah, I think we, the scatter graph that we had there earlier was, was E3 plot locations and plenish is not part of our product knowledge plot locations, but Ashley was kind enough to pull together about six locations where they they planted the plenish varieties, the high oleic soybean varieties. And I remember those are Roundup ready only. It's important to know that distinction. And they're specifically developed for some end use uh, market opportunities uh, through uh, CHS. And there's some, some good opportunities there as far as some premiums for uh, 2020, uh, you know, fall of 2023 and summer 2024, anywhere from at uh, at Grand Meadow being a, a dollar ten per bushel premium on up to as high as a dollar forty bushel per premium uh, June or July of 2024, and so that's why folks are are really looking closely at the plenish varieties. You know, you look at the average across those plots, and granted, they were not the same plot locations as our product knowledge plots, but the big number there is. You know, 68 bushel per acre is the average yield. I think our average yield from our product knowledge plots was 70 bushels to the acre. So I think, you know, the question is, and, and the experience on your farm may differ some, so is a two bushel difference in yield, you know, how do you weigh that versus what the potential premium opportunities are there, provided you are confident that you'll be able to get the weed control that you want to see uh, with that roundup you know, what with just being limited to the Roundup system alone. And so in my geography, Ashley, we're a little bit too far away uh, for it to make sense for a lot of folks uh, as far as uh, contracting to, to Fairmont or Grand Meadow down your way. It makes some sense. But we do have an interest in our area, a growing interest on the part of, of dairy farmers who happen to be uh, raising plenished soybeans, harvesting them, roasting them, 
and 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 feeding them grinding and feeding them to their cows and, and seeing some some tremendous benefits there so we do have some plenish in my area just not for that end use market mm. and yeah we have we have interest in in my area and experience um hauling those beans to fairmont um we have seen enlisted in our plot sets are four four soybean varieties here a one nine a two one a two two and a two four and i've seen all of those varieties in my area, um, the two, four, I've only seen in plots. Um, but I agronomically, I'm very happy with them. They're all peaking source of cyst resistance. It's just like you say, Jay, um, if you're doing this for the, the benefit of the premium, um, you just have to take into consideration your ability to co control weeds on your own respective farm. You know, there's some farms that in, in my area, I see Roundup and, and Flexstar used regularly with, with much success. And then I see the same scenario on a, in a slightly different geography with, with less success. And I'm sure there's lots of variables dictating that, but um, definitely a, a producer to producer decision. Then as we jump further into this publication designed for, for customers is a summary of our soybean varieties in our enlist portfolio and really digging into the characteristics and and yield data available on these respective varieties, and how I would use this if if I were looking at so, um, pioneer soybean varieties would be to page to the variety that I am interested in, for the purpose of looking at not only the characteristics and and language on some of the highlights of that particular variety, but also head to head comparisons between other varieties. So in creating these head-to-head -head varieties, we pull two years of data so that we have a lot of data available to make decisions and comparisons. And the geography for this data that we provide is across south, southern Minnesota, um, into Wisconsin and northern Iowa. So we really get a nice big poll. Um, and we compare, we provide some some head-to-head -head comparisons. So I'm looking right now at our 18A73Es. And we have those compared to three different varieties, one of those being an NK22-C4 um, E3 variety. And we have 17 locations in which those two varieties were compared head-to-head. -head. Um, and then we report the yield advantage. In this case, we have a 1.2 bushel yield advantage. We also report the percent wins. And the way that a, a person could utilize this is to see the consistency in which the variety or the, the hybrid was successful against the variety that it was paired against. So the higher the number, the better. You want to see consistent wins. Um, and then we also provide a moisture advantage, less important in beans than it is with corn, um, but it does tell you some information about how those varieties compare to each other. And then we utilize an AGI advantage, um, thinking about the current market prices and as it how it correlates to dollars based on the, the yield difference. We also run um, one more comparison of data, taking that variety for you and running it against all available comparisons. This is every time it was weighed against a pioneer variety or a competitive variety across that same geography we just mentioned. And those weighs must be against a variety that is within three RM, so plus or minus three RM. And there we demonstrate that variety's performance across that huge data set. And the way that you can utilize that is to look um, comparatively across different varieties to see what their performance is against the the greater pole. Now, knowing that does that does allow the variety, in this case, the 1.8s, to be uh, compared to 
a one nine, a two one, um, a two zero because it's within three maturity and you know the the latter as well. Um, but a nice resource as you're getting to know your pioneer soybeans um, to take a look at, and then then we have another agronomy article to highlight. Absolutely, Ashley. And as if we haven't talked about tar spot enough this year, we're talking about it again. So those of you that are playing the tar spot drinking game at home, now it's, it's bottoms up time. But, you know, this is a, a great section here starting at page 23 in the book. And I think one of the things here, uh, we start out with just kind of a general discussion, a reminder of conditions conducive to tar spot development, particularly where I'm at to the west, where we're kind of on the fringe, or we're actually in in your the western portion of your area where it, you know, tar spot kind of set up. Everybody's question is, okay, are we next? And and one of the things that you know I, I mentioned is that yeah, you know, it's it's kind of intimidating to think we have a buildup now of inoculum close by. But we got to have the right set of weather conditions in order for tar spot to develop. And so this does an excellent job. Just a reminder that it is favored by cool temperatures in the canopy, 60 to 70 degree temperatures, high relative humidity, you know, seven plus hours of dew at, at night really set things up for development of, of this disease. So there's some some great information here, some pictures for those that are still fuzzy on uh, tar spot identification. Uh, we move on to a section there where we, I believe we are the first in the industry, and I don't quote me on that for sure, but I think we may have been the first in the industry to actually publish tar spot scores uh, a year ago, and you will find those uh, scores and, and also some, some comparisons to some other uh, competitive products there as far as just the difference that the tar spot tolerance presents. And we always offer the reminder, uh, Ashley and I and, and all of our colleagues, is that when you make comparisons of tar spot scores, remember in our in our lineup, you know, uh, we, we rate on a, a one to nine scale, the higher the score being better. Okay. And so that that's one thing to keep in mind. Know that the comparisons are best within our brand. Okay. Just because we have a variety rated average and you see somebody else has their variety from a competitor rate as being average, say, well, they must be about the same. It's often what we've found, not always, but quite commonly, our average rated variety oftentimes will be as good as what somebody else may rate as, as above average in their lineup. So a uh, call out on that um, neat section here where uh, Josh Schaffner was able to fly a uh, plot location where there was some tar spot and they included not only the yield information, but there's a picture of the N NDVI imagery of each one of the strips. Uh, so it gives you a good visual representation um, from that NDVI imagery of how well different varieties happen to perform uh, at that that particular location. And it is interesting that 0622 is the greenest strip for the longest portion of it. And, you know, not too surprisingly, it had the highest overall uh, yield in that plot. And I do believe, uh, talking to our colleague Allie, uh, Allie Wise, that that location did receive one fungicide application as well. My favorite section is where we have the time-lapse photography. And if people don't already have the crap scared out of them uh, for fear of tar spot, um, this really 
is is kind of quite intimidating when you look at these pictures. And what Josh Schaffner did is at, at a plot location, starting the first of September, uh, he had, had uh, two different uh, hybrids out there. One uh, that has 0421 that has exceptionally strong tolerance to tar spot. Another uh, variety from a competitor that doesn't have a strong tar spot tolerance. And then each morning at 9 a.m there were pictures taken of the plot so a person can see the progression of tar spot. And in this case, it was over an 18-day time frame. And it's really quite remarkable on the quite susceptible variety that uh, by eight, within 18 days of initial infection, uh, those plants were pretty much all dead. And so, you know, I think the interesting thing or the important thing to keep in mind is that those conditions I talked about earlier, cool, damp conditions in the canopy. And we often have that in early September. We have those dewy mornings and it takes a while for that dew to dry off. And so midsummer in July, you aren't likely in most situations to see this rapid of progression. But, you know, it really gives you an indication how quickly it can potentially spread on a susceptible hybrid, but then also gives you a good contrast of a variety that has very strong tolerance to one that doesn't have as strong a tolerance to a tar spot. And, you know, again, any discussion of tar spot, we wouldn't be doing it justice if we didn't lead off with saying, you know, key things for managing the disease are, you know, selecting a, it's variety selection, it's scouting in uh, fungicide applications and the importance of uh, appropriately timing those fungicide applications. And so start off with a high yielding variety that has uh, good tar spot tolerance, scout and then manage throughout the season. That's perfect, Jay, that's a great summary. As you're making your hybrid selections or looking at the hybrid selections you've already completed with Pioneer, the, the next page that we go to is what we call our corn product positioning for your fields. Now, this is just like the soybean product positioning sheet. This is also authored by Jay. So it is sure to be uh, very intuitive and, and practical in its use. So there's a lot of good information on here. You really need to, to take a look at this if you, if you have made a Pioneer purchase or you intend to make a Pioneer corn purchase because there's a lot of good information. So there's a few ways to use this. You have in this document listed hybrids with their trait packages um, and their CRM, which um, that takes us to what the maturity of the hybrid is. And then we also have the silk maturity. Uh, that's important because we know we have some hybrids that are earlier to silk than their maturity or later to silk to their maturity. And it's advantageous to mix up your silking maturities to mitigate risk of catching a, a, a tough time of pollination or tough time of early grain fill um, across a large number of acres. If you can stagger your, um, your maturity of products and your silk to maturity, uh, that helps you mitigate risk on your own farm from catching what may be a detrimental few days or uh, a detrimental chunk of time during the growing season at those really important um, pollination and early green fill stages. Um, so that's something to look at as you're thinking about packaging hybrids or maybe comparing um, one hybrid to another. You want to have similar uh, silk CRM for timing of fungicide um, and then similar GDUs to maturity in products that you may be comparing. 
Another way to use this information here is referencing which hybrids are most suitable for continuous corn planting um, or planting into cold soils. So perhaps we get into the spring of 2023 and we have good soil conditions for planting, but those temperatures are quite cold. We encourage you to look at this information or seek out this information from your sales rep or your local Pioneer employee to help you guide which hybrid should be going in the ground in those situations. Pioneer spends um, a lot of time, energy, money, understanding what our stress emergence uh, characteristics are of respective hybrids. And we translate that information to our customers with a score of stress emergence, which is also represented here as an early planting slash cold soils appropriateness. Um, so this, this is a really important piece of information for you, for us to help you make the best decisions on what hybrid goes in the ground in those type of environments. Um, we also have a late harvest suitability rating, and that's important in planting uh, planning. Maybe you're, you're planting a farm that you know you're going to get to last, and, and you know you might be pushing it from a stock integrity perspective, um, and we can help you manage that by choosing hybrids that are well-suited for late harvest. Additionally, you may be thinking about um, your fungicide plan and, and thinking more about that as it relates to tar spot. Of course, we have tar spot scores on most of our hybrids, but we also list a fungicide response rating, which can help you um, plug that into your, your hybrid by fungicide plan and, um, and make the best decision for your farm. Um, here you can also find appropriateness of the product or the hybrid by soil type or drainage condition um, or lack thereof or a drought environment as well. So lots of information accessible to you in this product positioning sheet. And then the very last one that I'll call out is seeding rate recommendations by yield environment by hybrid. Um, so if you're choosing to flat rate a population um, on a given farm or maybe across the whole farm, you want to keep things simple, um, or you're putting together a variable rate script um, or, or signaling maybe your retailer or your pioneer sales rep to put together a variable rate script, this um, seeding rate recommendation by yield environment is important guidance to help you make the best script possible for your pioneer hybrid investment. Um, so lots of good things there. Um, and then as we move on, we dive into our corn yield by planting date information. Miss Ashley, so this is a summary of all 67 lo plot locations this year. And so I think one of the things that, that's interesting is, as we look at this, a couple things here. One, again, as I mentioned on the beans, I always find it interesting to look at the date where we have the most the biggest range as far as yields and you know this year it appears that the 10th of may was probably that planting window where we had the biggest range as far as uh, uh plot yield averages and you know what's interesting about that is is discussions i've had with some folks is you know one of two things as i think uh one uh, there was corn that was planted in that time frame that then um, afterwards was subjected to some pounding rains that, that crusted up in restricted emergence, which may have then ultimately impacted as far as what we saw for average yields on those on that particular date. I also can't help but wonder as well as, as, as we always have discussions about yield impacts with delayed planting. We had very few plots planted before. We only had one plot planted this year prior to the 7th of May. 
And, and so I think, you know, as we get to the 10th of May, people start getting nervous about what's that going to impact going to be on yield. And what do they do? They maybe push somewhat less than ideal planting conditions. That may explain why we see the greater variation in and around, in and around that planting date. So I think that's interesting information. I think uh, additionally, we have a section there as far as corn yield loss per, per day of delay in planting. And I always wonder, is it, is it better to say yield loss or yield penalty? Um, but if we look at this year, uh, it was uh, 0.43 bushels per acre compared to the five-year average of 0.53. Again, as Ashley had mentioned on the soybean side, uh, in here in the corn, it may be because we had a compressed planting window. As you were talking about that corn chip characteristics chart, Ashley, I was just looking here quickly. Um, 60 of the plots were planted within a 10-day time frame. So 60 of the 667 were planted between the 7th of May and the uh, 17th. And consequently, that's a pretty narrow time frame. So that that penalty, that's not all that many days. So that may explain why that number's relatively low. And again, we compare that to a uh, you know our six year average of being 0.53 bushels to, uh, per day, actually. Well, isn't that interesting to look at? I had one little supplemental piece of information that I had. I had pulled out of our corn um, yield by planting date. So I, I took all of our corn uh, plots that were planted May 14th or earlier. Um, and then I took them planted May 15th or later. And I specifically looked at 0622, which was our latest corn hybrid in our core set that was planted across uh, those 67 locations. And 0622, when planted May 14th or earlier, averaged 55.7 pounds in test weight. And then when I looked at it planted May 15th and later, it averaged 54.8 pounds. So almost a whole pound less in average test weight, um, which I thought was really interesting. And the other thing to call out there is um, in relation to that, I looked at the GDU accumulation in May. And if we look at May 9th to May 14th, we accumulated 109 GDUs, which represented uh, over a third of our May total GDUs. So there was there was a big difference in the the corn experience if it was planted ahead of that run of heat or after, and that appears to be reflective in our 0622 test weight. Um, that once we got that frost there at the latter end of the growing season, we we may have gave a little bit up in terms of of yield test weight um, with some of our our products at the later end of their maturity. It, it's interesting, Ashley, that you specifically called 0622 because I know we had a, a the latest plot we had planted. Okay, not the not the total eight because I see there must have been one went in on the 25th of May, but uh, we had one out in the Rush River area. So uh, west of Lee Sewer planted the 24th of May, and I'll be darn, 0622 was the highest yielding hybrid at that particular plot location. So I find that very interesting, especially as we talk about sticking with adapted products. You know, that's 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 the mantra as far as all all uh, agronomists, you know, stick with adapted hybrids, continue to plant full season products. And I remember when that plot was going in, it's like, okay, well, we'll find out whether or not the guidance we've been giving our farmer customers has been good guidance. And so it was interesting to see that in that particular plot location. I had to call that out. Ashley. Oh, that's fantastic. And I do, I do love the the comment on 
on sticking with adapted hybrids. And then even if we do get nipped a little bit on a hybrid on the later end of, of maturity with an early frost, those hybrids tend to come with such a yield advantage that we can weather a, a little bit of a risk from a, a frost, um, you know, collectively. So then we we summarize our our corn replicated uh, plot locations across the last three years. It's kind of fun to look back at 2020. We had 57 plots across Southeast Minnesota. Into 2021, we had 59 plots. And then when we got into 2022, we had 67 plot locations. And this is this is summarized with the higher on the, the graph you are, the higher the yield. And then we also summarize by moisture as well. Um, so you can very easily see which hybrids in our plots were the highest yielding, um, where they landed amongst our, our um, companion hybrids, and then which were the, the wettest uh, versus the driest at harvest. And we include the last three years and as a customer, as a sales rep, it's it's enjoyable to look back at the performance of a, a given hybrid. I'll pick on one, for example, 0404, we introduced into plots last year, um, and we run this in the Chrome version. You'll see most of our hybrids ran in the Chrome version in our PKP sets uh, with the acknowledgement that they may end up in continuous corn or they may end up planted, being planted on bean ground. Um, so 0404 was our second highest yielding hybrid last year. Um, behind a, a really tall 104-day um, that is 0487 chrome. And now when we look at this year, it remained to be our highest yielding hybrid in our plot sets, um, but but only so. There, there was um, several hybrids very close to 0404, um, and you can see that distribution um, coming a little tighter where we we don't have as much of a a separation uh, between between the leader this year and and or last year and this year. Um, so lots of good new hybrids to look at in this lineup, and you can see some some returning favorites as well as well as those two competitive testers that Jay mentioned earlier. So Ashley, then we we move on to a section here where we have both the uh, the late uh, relative maturity corn set and then also. Uh, the early relative maturity corn set. So uh, on the later side, uh, we had a handful of locations, I think is is probably the, the best way to put it. And really, when you look at this graph, there isn't a huge range in difference in yields from uh, the highest of uh, 262 bushels to the uh, low being what that would have been about 259. So there's a three, four bushel spread between the highest yielding um, and uh, the lowest yielding variety, but some really solid choices there. It is interesting that a variety like um, 0953 and, and 1082, they happen to be some AM products, so be aware of that. If you're in a corn-on-corn -corn situation, you're definitely going to want to be looking at the chrome version, but really uh, some nice performance there. I think the interesting call out here is on the lower section of plane, but the the page looking at adjusted gross income and looking at the adjusted gross income that those fuller season products generated. I know, Ashley, you did some work over the winter months comparing the adjusted gross income returns from full season products compared to earlier maturity products. And, you know, as, as we as we look across to the opposite uh, page and we look at some earlier 
relative maturity products. You know, unfortunately, they aren't the exact same plot uh, locations, but there's about a $150 per acre a difference in adjusted uh, gross income if I just eyeball it fast between that early set and the uh, the later set. Oh, isn't that interesting? And and great call out on it being a fewer number of locations. We we like to see we like to see thirty locations uh, of data, and that that allows us typically uh, a data set that stabilizes and is is um you know it carries its trend as we continue to add more data. Um, but with these data sets, we also supplement that with a wider range of data for us to make our own positioning. Um, uh, statements and and understanding of the yield potential of those products. So we work outside of of that data set as well. And then Jay had the idea of looking at the breakout geographically in beans, and then he had the same idea in corn. So we do provide that um, in this publication, but then also summarized here um, for our listeners today in a little different way. Um, so looking at that same breakout of counties, um, our eastern to northern counties um, representing that area of above average rainfall or getting up into the Washington, Dakota County area where we we have opportunity for irrigation. Not all of our plots are necessarily under pivot, but um, we would have more plots underwater there than we would as we get into other ge geographies listed. So our average corn plot yield in that set of counties was 237.4 bushels. And it represented the wettest corn that was harvested in our area for an average of 20.9% moisture. Um, then when you go into the opposing area, uh, that is Jay's neck of the woods, then we go from a 237.4 bushel average down to a 235.7. Uh, and then our moisture, though, comes down to 18.1%. So you guys averaged over 2% over, yeah, over 2% drier corn when you got out West. And that, that represented reality, didn't it, Jay? You guys had quite a bit drier corn. I think it did, Ashley. And we, we got pushed to the finish uh, faster because we were limited in moisture, uh, limited in precipitation is probably the best way to put it. You, you'll notice that we had the uh, lowest moisture content in harvest, and we actually also had the highest test weight um, as, as well. And and I think that, that speaks to uh, my observations over the years as far as natural air drying in the field. We tend to get our best test weight when we get our natural air drying out in the field and sell, you know, that harvest moisture of 18% uh, dry field drying down to 18% really helps uh, pick up that, uh, that test weight. And, you know, it, it seems to me, Ashley, that the place to be this year really was <laughs> Dodge Freeborn mower and steel counties because they had the highest average corn yield. And I think they were just nipping on the heels of extreme Southeast there for the second highest soybean yield as, as well. So that must be the land of milk and honey there it's in that area to have those kind of both so corn and soybean yields. I know that that location moves around. So I'll take it this year. And yes, our, our home farm happens to be just South of the border of Freeborn County. And, and we were, we were very grateful um, and fortunate to have, have a pretty, pretty good crop. So we're happy for that. Um, Looking at our data analysis of, of this year, we also provide summary of plots that received fungicide versus did not receive a fungicide. So across those 67 locations that we harvested, 45 of those received a fungicide, a foliar fungicide in season, 
and 22 of those did not. Um, so as we parse out that data, the the 45, 45 locations that received fungicide yielded uh, ended up being 10.6 bushels better than the plots that did not receive fungicide. Um, of course, if you're if you're looking at at fungicide data, ideally you would like that to be in the same environment. Uh, with part of the field sprayed versus the other part not sprayed. Um, but this is a, a great way to, to look at that data with the, the data that's available to us, Jay. Yes, Ashley. And I think, you know, what, I, what I've seen over the years, so, so again, that, that 10.6 bushel per acre average difference, historically, as we've been running those comparisons, it's settled in and around 12 bushel per acre uh, advantage. Over the years, you know, this year, um, I, I think uh, further west, I think other years we've had maybe a more split comparison where we'd have an e more equal number of plots with and without fungicide. Um, this year, it was maybe more skewed more heavily towards more locations having fungicide applications. It could very well be that that was driven by a uh, tar spot from from those folks in Southeast Minnesota. And folks can also see kind of a range as far as responsiveness on different hybrids. You know, one of the things that I found over the years is I've looked at the number, Ashley, that we found in these plots and it isn't, it's, it's not perfect, okay? It's not replicated research, but it is just, it's kind of a, a, a mixed data set, so to speak. But oftentimes it has mimicked what farmers have seen out in their, out in the field. Oh, that's wonderful. I I really appreciate that. And, and any more fungicide data can be difficult to come by. Um, we we don't we don't necessarily like leaving checks, or if we do, we don't we don't always good do a good job capturing that information on on respective operations. So so we sure appreciate that data. And then we do look at corn on corn versus our corn on soybean locations. Yes, Ashley. So we have a a comparison here. Uh, we had ten locations that were corn on corn. And then we had 57 locations that were corn on soybeans and sow. And I think one of the interesting things you you look at here is, well, look at that is as far as the actually we had uh, higher yields, uh, slightly higher yields corn on corn compared to um, our corn on bean situation. Now I think out west where I'm at. Um, in our drier conditions, we did see a significant difference between corn on corn performance overall and corn on, on soybeans. So as you compare these, these graphs, I think what's interesting to observe here on this section of the agronomy book is that the relative ranking of the hybrids doesn't really change the the key products the products that that we called out earlier 0622 0404 9955 they were the the leaders in in corn on corn they were leaders on on soybean ground um as as well and 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 so it, it's surprising how that relative ranking of those products really doesn't change regardless of what that previous crop happened to be oh that's really that's a really good call out if you're looking at this publication, the next resource that we make available is our individual product sheets for our corn hybrids. And here you can see what trait packages the respective hybrid that you're looking at is available in, and also information about characteristics, the disease scores, and then suitability ratings for different environments that you might have on your farm. 
Uh, we also comment on positioning opportunities for that respective hybrid. And then again, we bring you that seeding rate information by yield environment um, in this part of the publication, but then also back in the, the previous uh, grid that we mentioned. So there's two places to find that information for you. And then we also provide head-to-head -head comparison data um, in a geography a little bit tighter than what we provided the beans because we tend to get more, more corn locations in a given geography. So it's easier to get up there in a, in a higher number of locations to give us more confidence in that data. Um, so for this data for you, we pulled Southeast Minnesota and Northern Iowa for the last two years. And I'm looking at a product now, our P9955. Um, and here we have that compared to, um, three different decalb hybrids and one channel hybrid across those geographies. And, and that's for you to, to have reference of performance against some hybrids that, that you might be familiar with. Um, great, uh, great resource for you to utilize uh, to better understand your pioneer investment and, and better understand how to place that. But don't, don't um, rely on this solely. Definitely use the the local knowledge of your pioneer sales rep and your your local pioneer team to help you maximize that investment. Jay, do you have any other comments on the book or, or any guidance well, for listeners? Well, Ashley, we're kind of coming down to the wire here. And I think if most listeners are like me, you're usually listening to a podcast as you're driving down the road. And so Ashley and I are walking through a book and you're driving down the road and you're figuring, how can we keep up with what you're talking about? And, and so our, our hope is this, is that some of the comments we shared will uh, spark some interest on, on your part that either you will go back and take a look at your, your book at home, you'll seek out your pioneer sales rep and get this agronomy book. And then you know what you're going to do? You're going you're gonna to queue up the podcast again and, and maybe kind of walk through the book and hear our comments along the way. That was our intent with the show today. So uh, hopefully you, if you're driving down the road, we called out a few key points, whether it be fungicide response, whether it be planning date response, particular responses of hybrids. Now, you know, go home if you want to study the agronomy book. I think it'd be a great opportunity for you. And next time we get together for a, a podcast, Ashley and I were talking before the show. I think what we're going to do is uh, Pioneer North America publishes its own agronomy summary book where it's, it isn't plot locations, but it's specific research uh, on different topics. I think Ashley and I are going to dig into about uh, maybe f uh, three or four different topics. One of them is phantom yield loss. Uh, some pioneer agronomists in Nebraska did a, a, a study on phantom yield loss. There's also an interesting article that I saw about leaf orientation, actually as, as seed placement impacts leaf orientation of a corn plant. And so, um, you know, We'll go through that, and I, th I think you'll find that interesting, so hope you'll join us on that podcast. Ashley, we better wrap things up here. Oh, sure can. Listeners, you can follow the podcast now on Twitter. The show handle there is at YFO Agronomy, or me personally at Ashley Storby, and Jay can be found at SeedZeek. You can join Jay and me on our next episode as we share highlights from the North American Agronomy Summary Book. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 27 of Your Field is Our Office. Be safe and stay healthy.